Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. For those of you that are not familiar with the book of Lamentations, those of you that have been here in the study, you've probably heard this already, but that's okay. Um, Lamentations, we believe, don't know under 100%, but we believe was written by prophet Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was the prophet who uh, prophesied towards the end of Judah's reign before they went into Babylonian captivity. And in fact, he witnessed the whole thing, basically. And uh, so Lamentations, we believe, was written immediately after, soon after the, the Jews had gone into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And by that time, Jerusalem was just, it was devastated. They had been, in, uh, uh, they had been besieged for actually off and on for about 12 years. And, uh, and so uh, they had gone through starvation. Uh, we'll read about some pretty miserable conditions that they underwent. Um, but Jeremiah was a prophet who had God's heart for the people. And he wasn't a prophet that was just saying, you know, you evil people, God's going to destroy. No, he, he was crying. He's known as the weeping prophet. And uh, so here, Jeremiah, after the, the captivity takes place, Jeremiah is sitting in a cave known as Jeremiah's Grotto. And he's just, he's, he, you know, his heart's broken. And he's composing these lamentations. There's five chapters. Um, and four of them were acrostics. In fact, chapter four we're going to look at this morning was an acrostic as well. An acrostic, uh, if you look at the chapters, they're broken up except for chapter three, I believe it is. But the other chapters are broken up by 22 verses. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each verse start, <coughs> excuse me, begins with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That's what an acrostic is. There are other chapters in the Bible that are acrostics as well, or other books in the Bible, chapters of books in the Bible. Um, but Lamentations chapter 4 is an, acro- an, an acrostic. We lose it in the translation. If you try to look at it and go, I don't see that, you, you won't. Unless you saw the original Hebrew, then you probably would understand it. But So, Chapter 4 of Lamentations really can be broken up, I think, into three sections. Verses 1 through 11 talk about the deplorable condition of the people of Judah, how they went from glory to shame and misery. And then verses 12 through 20 uh, really talk about the king, the rulers, the priests, and their deplorable condition, how they went from being useful by God or for God to being... Uh, disregarded and disrespected. And then the last part, verse 21 and 22, is a warning to the nation of Edom. So we'll take a look at that. So beginning with verse 1. How the gold has become dim. How changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. What Solomon is talking, or excuse me, what Jeremiah is talking about is Solomon's temple. Uh, it's now in ruins at this point. Whatever gold was left, if there was any gold that was left, it had lost its luster. And the, those beautiful quarried stones that made up the temple, um, they, they were just laying around, strewn about throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Verse 2, the precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. 
And so the picture here, excuse me, the picture here is just like the temple uh, was once glorious and now it's just devastated. Those people, God's people, the Jews, they were once a glorious people when they served the Lord and when they obeyed the Lord. But now they're regarded as ordinary clay pots in the hands of a potter. Not only that, but the implication is ruined clay pots. And there's other portions of Scripture in the Bible that talk about the, the potter and the clay. And in Jeremiah's, uh, in Jeremiah, I think it was in Jeremiah or in Isaiah, we read about the, the potter and how he was sitting at the wheel and he was, he was forming this clay and, and, and you know, he, was, he had a plan in mind for it. And then there was a flaw in the clay. And it was something that he just couldn't fix. And so he tossed it out in what was known as the potter's field. Potter's field was like a refuse dump. And uh, you'll recall that may, maybe that sounds a little familiar to you. If you recall that Judas went and uh, hung himself and they went and they buried him in the potter's field. It's the same, same thing, basically. And uh, so what's the picture that Jeremiah is portraying here? Well, this is what happens when God's people fall into sin. Their spiritual beauty and their usefulness by God, it's diminished through sin. And that's what happened to God's people. They were once glorious, they were once useful, but now because of unrepentant sin, habitual sin, and refusing to change, now they're, they're useless to the Lord. And they're like clay pots that, are, that, are, that have got defects that are just ready to be tossed out. Verse 3. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel. Like ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Of course, there was starvation that was going on because that's how, in those days, that's how countries would overcome or, you know, nations would overcome other nations. They would besiege their fortified cities and basically starve them out until they were so weak and so demoralized, and then they'd go in and they'd conquer the people. And that, that's what they did with Jerusalem. And so here, Jeremiah, you know, the kids are bearing the brunt of the, of the sin of the parents here. You think about it. You know, that's always the case. You and I as parents, you know, when, when, we, when we sin, when we, when we compromise, it's not just us that are affected by it, but it's our children that are affected. And I see that so often, and it breaks my heart when I see children that are affected by the sins of their parents. That's exactly what's happened. Verse 5, Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the wilderness. Those who are brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which is overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Judah's punishment was so extreme. In fact, it was even more extreme than the destruction of Sodom. That seems pretty severe. But if you think about it, Sodom's destruction was sudden. Judah's destruction, however, was prolonged and it was miserable. And Sodom, they didn't have prophets that came to warn them to repent from their sin. But Judah, God had sent people, God had sent men time and time again to his people to urge them to repent of their sins and to turn back to him. He waited and waited and waited and pleaded with them, and they refused to repent from their sin. And so Judah's accountability was that much greater. You know, Jesus said in the New Testament, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Sometimes I feel sorry for you guys. 
Because, you know, we go through the Bible, we teach through cover to cover. You know, we, we, we don't shy about talking about sin and issues like that. And, and it, on one hand, it's great that you're learning the Bible. But on the other hand, it's, maybe it's not so great because now you're accountable to what you hear. Maybe it'd be better to go to a church where, you know, they just tell you nice things that you want to hear. You know, because then you're not accountable. Well, you're accountable. <laughs> but Judah was more accountable than the people of Sodom. Verse 7. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become dry as wood. Now, if you know what a Nazarite was or a Nazarene, it was, it was somebody who, uh, actually it was a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, somebody who separated themselves unto the Lord. And there were different people that, that did that throughout history. They would separate themselves. Another Bible, and some of your Bibles might translate that as princes. But in any event, these people, you know, they're set apart for the Lord. And their appearance and their complexion was once beautiful, but now they're dark and unrecognized as Nazarites. You know, it's an interesting description that Jeremiah gives here because it's a, it's a really a, a, a very similar picture to the Shulamite's description of her love, of, 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 of basically of the Messiah. It's a picture of the Messiah in Solomon, Song of Solomon, uh, verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. You read that and you get them side by side and you go, wow, it's almost the same picture. If you think about it, the princes who were separated under the Lord... They resembled the Lord. You know, a believer who consecrates himself or herself to the Lord starts to resemble the Lord. When you and I start following the Lord and we start submitting to His will and we're growing in the Word and we're growing, you know, we're, we're just we're following what the Holy Spirit's speaking to us and we're, we're trying to become more like Jesus. Well, i got news for you. you. You start looking like Jesus. There's that resemblance there. We start to reflect Jesus more and more. Now, I used to work um, as a maintenance guy for IBM, and uh, I started out in San Jose and then transferred out here. 1990s, when I, for, uh, we've moved back and forth a few times, but the first time I transferred here, we weren't pastoring a church or anything like that, but I came here to work for IBM, and I had been in maintenance in San Jose, and so I got a job here in maintenance um, working on equipment here in the uh, Rochester plant. And I got a job on, on third shift, graveyard shift, and uh, I started meeting these guys that I was working with, and they kept telling me about this guy on second shift, the shift right before me. That they apparently this guy had a real bad reputation, and uh, you know, of course, these guys were gossiping. But they were talking about this guy and telling me all about this guy and all the stuff that he did. The guy had a terrible reputation, and it was interesting. He ended up getting fired uh, from the company eventually, from steal for stealing from the company. But here's the kicker. The guy was a believer in the Lord. You, you know, we had these roll-around toolboxes, you know, the big big Sears or Craftsman toolboxes. Each one of us had our own toolboxes full of tools, and uh, we'd roll around the equipment that we worked on. Well, you know, we had this kind of this area where all these people's toolboxes, like a parking lot of toolboxes, and, you know, you walk by the second shift guy's toolbox. So this guy's toolbox had Christian verses, you know, stickers. You know, he had all this stuff that you look at his toolbox, and his toolbox looked like the toolbox was a Christian. <laughs> but the guy wasn't. Well, I mean, I can't say that he wasn't, but his testimony was just, it was out the door. 
You know, that's what happens when you and I fall into sin. We lose that reflection of Christ. We no longer, we no longer resemble Christ to the world. And pretty soon they look at us and go, well, you look, you're just like us. You're no different than anybody else. Well, that's what happened to these Nazarites. They no longer resembled the Messiah. They were unrecognizable going through the streets. Verse 9, Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away. Stricken for lack of the fruits of the field, the hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. And Jeremiah here is saying, a swift death was better than dying of starvation. It got so bad in Jerusalem that people literally resulted to cannibalism in, the, in that time. Verse 11, The Lord has fulfilled His fury. He has poured out His fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion, and it has devoured its foundations. So complete, <coughs> excuse me, so complete was God's punishment that the fire of his wrath that's depicted here, it doesn't, didn't only just burn things to the ground, but it burned the, the foundation in the ground. I mean, it just completely went down to, so there was nothing left. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. This is, God has just completely punished us with the fire of his indignation, with the fire of his... I mean, we are, it's, it, there's nothing left. We can't try to rebuild or something. It's, it's just, it's gone. That's how severe and how thorough and how complete God's judgment was of his people. And now we get to the next section in verse 12, talking about the priests and the prophets and the king. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, Go away, unclean. Go away, go away. Do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, They shall no longer dwell here. Jeremiah is pointing out that the responsibility or the reason why the nations, the enemy nations were able to, to enter into Jerusalem and take over, the responsibility laid literally on the shoulders of the priests and the prophets of, of Jerusalem. God's men who were supposed to warn his people, who were supposed to themselves live lives, uh, you know, set apart for the Lord. But these guys have become so corrupt there was only a few true prophets in that time. Jeremiah, of course, being one of them. Ezekiel being another one. Isaiah, another one. But so many of them were corrupt and they were false prophets. And they had blood on their hands. The true prophets of God, they hated that message because it contradicted what they said. And they wanted to kill prophets. In fact, it's believed that Isaiah was sawn in too. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit and left for dead if he hadn't been rescued by by uh, an Ethiopian eunuch. So they had blood on their hands. And not only were they incapable of leading others into spiritual truth, but they themselves were blind guides. And here Jeremiah is depicting them like lepers. Nobody wants to go near them. Even the, even the nations that they go, they go, man, we, they were just no respect. You know, once they were the men that you know, represented God to the people men of respect. 
men who you would look to for advice and you, you, want, you would want to emulate your life after them. But no longer. They had, gone, they, had, they had gone so far away from that because of their sin. Verse 16, The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests, nor show favor to the elders. Verse 17, Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching we watch for a nation that could not save us. You know, the leaders of Judah and the people of, of Judah, they were not right with the Lord. And when they got into trouble, when the news of the Babylonians were coming, they tried to turn to Egypt for help. Now, if you've known, if you've been around here, we've gone through our studies in the Bible, we know that Egypt is a picture of the world. And so here, you know, Egypt was unable to deliver Judah from the hand of the Babylonians. And if God is chastening you or I, it's fruitful to resist Him and to try to seek deliverance from something or someone else. Yeah, I've seen that before. You know, it's like I'm running out of options. I try all kinds of things. Well, going to the world, that's your problem. The Lord wanted them to come to Him. But they tried first to go to Egypt, and Egypt couldn't deliver them. Verse 18, They tracked our steps so that we could no longer walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were over, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. There basically was nowhere to run and hide from the enemies. God had set it up so that just, there's no escape from His judgment, from His hand upon them. Verse 20, The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits, of whom we said, Under His shadow we shall live among the nations. What that's speaking about, see, God's judgment was so thorough and so severe, even their political leader, who was the king, was unable to deliver them. In fact, he himself went into hiding and was captured. And that's speaking about King Zedekiah. He tried to sneak out at night with some of his soldiers. He didn't make it very far. They, they caught him. They captured him. They brought him back to, brought him to before, before Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the king basically, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, killed the princes in front of his eyes, killed his sons, and then gouged out his eyes and hauled them off to, to Babylon. So severe was it. But they had this slogan, under his shadow, we'll live among the nations. They looked to their king to be their deliverer. As long as, as long as our political process is good, man, we're okay. You know? It was an empty promise. I know a lot of people voted for President Obama because of his promise of hope and change. And I think we found it that it's really an empty promise. And the reason why is because you can't look to man to fix the problems of this nation. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what political party you're trying to, you know, Democrats or Republicans, or it doesn't matter. If you're looking to man to fix the problems, our problems in this culture and our country are a lot deeper than any political process can fix. We as a nation have turned away from the Lord. We as a nation need to turn back to the Lord. We as a nation need to repent of our sin and come back. Verse 21. Now we get a warning to Edom. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. Now, Jeremiah here is being sarcastic. 
by the way. The cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of of Edom. He will uncover your sins. God was basically through chastening his people at this point. He's going to have compassion again. They were going to be in captivity for 70 years. God was going to bring them out of captivity. But Edom's problems were just beginning. Edom, uh, that's basically, if you look at the, at the map today, it's basically where um, modern uh, uh, Jordan, the nation of Jordan, that's kind of the land of Edom over there. Um, the nation of Edom would be condemned. In fact, in the prophet uh, Obadiah, when we get to that later on, Edom is going to be very heavily condemned by God through the prophet Obadiah. Why? Because Edom rejoiced over the children of Judah's misfortune. When the Babylonians came and they, they were uh, swallowing up nation after nation after nation, uh, you know, Judah and uh, Syria... And Egypt tried to ally together, and of course that was didn't work out too well for him. Uh, Edom went ahead and, and allied with with Babylon during that time, and so they had a little bit of a little bit of freedom for a while there. But they started doing some stuff, and they ended up getting swallowed up by Babylon as well. Well, when Jerusalem was being attacked or taken over in that day of destruction. The Edomites, they were speaking proudly against Judah. They actually went into the nation and the land of Judah, and they started looting the property of Israel. And when the Israelites, when the Jews from Jerusalem were trying to escape different routes, the Edomites actually blocked their escape routes so they couldn't get away from the Babylonians. So they, they, they were just treacherous towards the Jews. And so, you know, so God is going to judge them for that. You know, I think it's a real warning for you and I. You know, sometimes we rejoice over the destruction of others. You know, wicked people, right? People that deserve it. We kind of gleefully, it's like, oh, I'm glad they're getting their just desserts. Well, we need to be careful as God's people not to rejoice over someone else's misfortune, even if they are evil people. And then finally, those that try to hide their sin, God's going to uncover it, as he says here. Now we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5, 22 verses, as you'll notice. But what's interesting about chapter uh, 5, it's not an acrostic. All the other ones were acrostics except for chapter 5. Why? Because chapter 5 is a prayer of Jeremiah. And I love the fact that it's not an acrostic because to me it's like, you know, Jeremiah is just pouring out his heart now to the Lord. I don't know if you grew up in a religious home or a home where, you know, you know, maybe, I don't know which denomination or what kind of church you might have grown up in or whatever, but, you know, you had certain formulas for prayer, right? You pray a certain way, you say certain things, and maybe you had to fold your hands and close your eyes. You know, there's just certain things you had to do. Maybe you had to bow or whatever it was. You, you get that kind of ingrained in you, and you kind of follow a pattern, and what I love about chapter 5, it doesn't really follow a pattern. It's, just, it's, just, it's not an across. It's just, it's just from Jeremiah's heart. And I think those are the times when God loves our prayer when it's just from our heart. When we're not going through motions trying to say the right words. When we're just, Lord, this is, this, I'm just bearing my heart before you. And I want to encourage you to do that. 
Don't God's not, you know, he's not going to stop. You didn't say it right. You know, you didn't say enough these and thous and our heavenly father. You know, just pour out your heart to the Lord. He already knows what's going on in your heart anyways. He just wants you to be honest before him. And so Jeremiah pours out his heart to the Lord. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's the best thing you and I can do. I don't know who I was talking with. I don't know. It might have been one of you. I'm not sure. But I was talking with someone a couple days ago. And they were they had some... It wasn't one of you. I remember now who it was. They were talking about medical issues and they were trying all these different options. And they said, well, you know, if all else fails, I'll just pray. And then they had this big smile on their face. And they go, well, you know, that's really not true. I mean, that's not like our last option to pray. That's, that's my first option. I'm like, that's cool. But isn't that true, though? Sometimes we do that. It's like, I'm going to try everything else. And when all else fails, then I'll pray. Well, if you're going through something, don't try all the other options. Pray. Go to the Lord. And although this, it's a prayer from Jeremiah's heart, I think there's some key things in here, some key aspects that we can learn from. And we'll take a look at that as we go through the chapter. So verse 1, very first thing he says, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look, and behold, our reproach. Now, asking the Lord to remember them. Jeremiah, it's, it's not like God's forgotten. It's like, hey, hey God, I just want to remind you that we're here You know, it's not that God needs to be reminded. It's really an attitude of humility and submission. Remember the thief on the cross? Remember there was two thieves, and one of them was was kind of mocking Jesus just like everybody else was around. And the one thief said, hey, wait a minute. Man, we, we deserve the punishment we got, but this man's innocent. And then he turned to the Lord and said, Lord, and this is all he said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That's all he said. He didn't go through some formula, you know. He didn't pray the sinner's prayer. He just said, Lord, remember me when, I come, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was guilty, deserving death. He knew it. He didn't cry out for Jesus to deliver him. He didn't complain about his unjust treatment. He just asked the Lord to remember him. It's interesting as we go through this chapter too. If you look at who Jeremiah is praying for, you'll never read in this chapter, Lord, I am in the midst of evil people that deserve judgment. Deliver me. Jeremiah is never praying selfishly for himself. In this. I just find that fascinating. He includes himself with the people. His prayer is comprised of us, we, and our, not them, me, and I, and a true minister of the Lord doesn't separate himself from the people he ministers to. God, you know, I don't think that came naturally for Jeremiah. I think God did that work in Jeremiah's heart over all those years. God did that work in Moses' heart. Remember Moses at first, you know, towards the end there, you know, God's like, I'm so sick of those people. They complain all the time. So I'm going to stand back, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to make a nation from you. Do you remember that? I don't think it was in the Ten Commandments. Some of you don't remember that part, but in the movie, the Ten Commandments. Moses said, Lord, Lord, what about your promise to your people? What are the nations around going to say? You know, I don't think God was like, I'm, God was like, I'm going to wipe out the people. I think God was just trying to get Moses to the point where Moses said, Lord, you know, 
I'm standing in the gap. And I think that's what God wants to do with each one of us. He did that work in their hearts, and I think he wants to do that work in your and my heart as well. So the first thing that stands out is, is Jeremiah, just in humility and submission, says, just, Lord, remember me. That's why we were singing that song, Remember Me, Lord. The next thing that stands out is that he's acknowledging their condition. I mean, he's just being honest here. Verse 2, Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows, and we pay for the water we drink, and our wood comes at a price. We've forfeited our inheritance. And then he says the water and the wood, we now have to pay for it. You know, those resources that they once took for granted that were free, now they no longer are free. Now they have to, now they have to pay for it. They're, they're realizing what they've lost. So it's being honest. Verse 5, They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. They've allowed themselves to reach a position of having to submit to the Egyptians and the Assyrians just in order to get their most basic needs met. And you know what's fascinating? If you, read, if you read this and you take out something, like maybe you go home today, you take a look at chapter 5, get another Bible and open up chapter Deuteronomy chapter 28 and lay them side by side, you'll be amazed. God said exactly that this stuff is what was going to happen to them. Everything. God said, this is exactly, if you disobey me, this is the consequences. And Jeremiah is saying, Lord, these, we're, we're living out these consequences. I think what Jeremiah is doing here is he's just acknowledging, God, you're right. What you said is true. Verse 7, Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Now that's an interesting verse there. He's not declaring their innocence. He's not declaring that God is unjust. But if you read in Ezekiel 18, the individual that sins is accountable to God. This is, I think, simply a cry for mercy on a national level. I think of our country, you know. Our country has been on a downhill slide for many generations, and I think we're just now starting to bear the fruit of it. We're starting to see the results of basically turning our back on God. You know, as a nation, we are bearing accumulated guilt of years of shoving God out of our government and out of our schools. You know, I don't know if you read the news or heard the news about these kids in Oklahoma. They, they were just bored and they thought, hey, let's, I don't know, what do you want to do today? Hey, there's a guy, let's shoot him. And they shot this guy in cold blood just because they were bored, according to what, that's what they say apparently. Well, of course, we had that massacre, right, that occurred not too long ago in that elementary school. And we gasp in terror when we hear about those things. It's like it's so senseless. Those individuals that perpetrated those crimes, they are guilty and they do deserve judgment. But, you know, as a nation, <laughs> we've voted in politicians. We've allowed judges to take God out of our schools, to replace him with the God of humanism. What do you expect? Generations of turning our back on God. What do you expect? Finally, kids... They've been taught that they, that they weren't created. They taught that they've, they've evolved by some cosmic accident. So what purpose is there to their lives? You know, what, what's the reason? Then, then I'm the God of my life, basically. And if I, if I feel it's right for me to, you know, I, I want to do this evil thing, hey, it's just me, right? What do we expect when we see these things happening? 
It's, it's, it's accumulated sin of our nation, I think, and of our, gener- of our, of our culture. Verse 8, servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the city of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. You know, it doesn't get more bleak than this, does it? And now there's an important turning part, turning point, excuse me, in Jeremiah's prayer. He's acknowledged their condition. And now he's acknowledging the cause of their condition. Verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. This is such a key point. It's because of our sin that we're in this predicament. Notice again that Jeremiah says it's because we have sinned. He doesn't say it's because these evil people, God, you sent me to them to, to minister to them, to, to tell them to turn, and they've sinned. No, he says we've sinned. This is what confession is. It's agreeing with, with what God says about our sin. It's acknowledging that we've transgressed His commandments and confessing it to Him. It's just being open. God, God, I've sinned. I, I've, your righteous commands say this, Lord, I, and I've failed, and I haven't done it. And I'm guilty. And then verse 19, You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. What's happening here is finally it's a prayer of renewal. It's a prayer, you know, acknowledging their condition, agreeing with what God said that their condition would be, and then confessing their sin. And now they're asking for renewal, for restoration. Notice what Jeremiah doesn't say. If you get us out of this mess, I'm going to go to church every week. Or I'm going to start being a better person. That's not what he says. He asks God to turn them back to him. I think that's fascinating. He says, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. What is he doing? He's acknowledging that they're prone to sin. And he's asking God to change their heart. I think that's a key point for you and I. We don't have the ability to restore and renew ourselves. You might think, you know, I want to I change. I want to start being a better person. You can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You have to give your heart to Jesus first to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have to repent of your sins, confess and repent, and believe that Jesus died on the cross and receive Him in as as your Savior. And once you do that, you receive the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And it's the Holy Spirit that enables you, that that does that restoration work in us. As you and I submit to Him, and as we follow Him, 
We need that indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So often I see people trying to do things on their own, trying to fix things in their own strength. And it's like, no, you just, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to do that in your life. Paul wrote in Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, as you and I submit to the Holy Spirit, He's the one that transforms us. He's the one that restores and renews us. And then the last thing that Jeremiah refers to is God's eternal nature. You, O Lord, remain forever your throne from generation to generation. He's remembering God's promise, His covenant promise to Abraham. God, I remember your faithfulness, I remember your word, and I believe your word. I think that's another key point for us. Again, like I said, you know, sometimes we, we, we come across things we can't explain. We can't answer why God allows the things that He allows. We have to fall back on what we do know. We know that God's promised us eternal life. We know that Jesus loves us. We know that, you know, so many things that He's given us and promised us. We need to go back to that and remind ourselves of that. And that's what Jeremiah is doing here. God, your throne established forever and ever. And God was merciful to them. And He was faithful to them. After 70 years, they returned from captivity in Babylon and came back into the land. The king of Persia was in control at that point and allowed them to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It's interesting. God allowed them to come back into the land, restored them, knowing that generations later they were going to reject His Son, Jesus. They were going to reject the Messiah. And then at that point, they would be taken from the land and scattered for 2,000 years. But you know, God's throne lasts forever. God is still in control. You would think after 2,000 years, man, nothing's happened yet. Nothing's going to happen. Well, guess what? 2,000 years later, God is still faithful to His promise to Abraham. And He's brought, He's made Israel, I was about to say Egypt. (laughs) He's brought Israel a nation, made them a nation once more. God is faithful to His covenant promises. He's faithful to His promise to you and I. And He's still on the throne. It's amazing to me in our lifetime that we get to see God fulfill His word to the nation of Israel. And of course, they're not a Christian or, you know, they're not, a, 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 they're not following the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah, by and large. There's a few that do, but by and large, they're not. But God's doing a work in their hearts, and God's going to do a work. He's not done working with the nation of Israel. He's not finished with them yet. But the key point in that is that God is faithful. And I know what some of you are going through. I don't know what everybody's going through this morning. I don't know if you're struggling this morning with, you know, trying to, you know, maybe there's a sin in your life that you've been struggling with and you're trying to get beyond it and you're just, you're trying everything you can and you keep failing, keep failing. You know what? Turn to the Lord and ask Him to do that work in you. Submit, surrender to the Lord and, and submit to the work of the Holy Spirit. Because it's, He's the one that's going to do the transforming in your and my life. We can't do it on our own. We need Him. We need His power. We need His filling to do that. And God is faithful. 
I want to just encourage you with that this morning. God is faithful. Take him at his word. You can trust him. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.